Genesis chapter 3, and we are going to read just the first nine verses. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this day. We're thankful for the assembly that you've placed us in. You've given us a place to serve, to fellowship, to uh, worship, to Use the gifts that you give through your spirit. We ask that you would please continue to guide our assembly. Be with us this morning as we look to this passage of scripture and show us the truths contained therein, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would understand the effects of sin, and that we would seek salvation in your son. Please forgive us of our sins. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This text of scripture has one of the first stories from the first book about the first people experiencing the first temptation, committing the first sin, hearing the first questions from God to man, and answering with the first pathetic excuse. Verse 8 of our text tells us that it seems it was customary for the Lord God to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. It seems that regular occurrence was something that perhaps Adam looked forward to. There's this personal interaction that has taken place uh, between uh, God and humanity in a way that the remainder of creation does not experience. You'll note those words in verse 8, the Lord God, Lord is in all caps. That is, it is the Hebrew word Yahweh, or sometimes we use Jehovah, the one true God, the creator and master of all things, the Yahweh who in chapters 1 and 2 made all things. He made the sun, moon, and stars, and he separated the day from night. He would come to Human beings that he created, and as the sun lowered and the sky started to dark and the wind picked up and the the twilight of the day would bring Yahweh to them to walk with them and to talk with them. Can there be any scene more ideal than that? 
everything that God made was good. He declared it, in fact, very good. And yet, here they are, they're surrounded by goodness in perfect communion with Yahweh. And our first parents are about to perpetuate a horrific rebellion. The terrible events of this chapter show us that that communion with God is about to be shattered. The catastrophic consequences of sin are about to separate mankind from God. By the end of this chapter, creation is no longer at peace with the Creator. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament is going to look back on this time, this dreadful moment in history, and sum it up like this. By one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death is passed upon all men, because all have sinned. The world, which knew no wickedness prior to what we've just read, is going to become racked by sin. Death, which has been unknown before this, is about to become the the prevailing truth of all living things. The essential nature of man, which before this had been very good, is now going to be so depraved and evil that the Apostle Paul can say with surety, all have sinned. In other words, yes, humanity fell in Adam, but individually we die, we suffer the consequences because of our own sin, our own guilt. There's going to be no blaming Adam when you stand before God. What Paul says is that we are sinners by nature, we are sinners by action, and we're sinners by choice. The entirety of the human race is about to fall here in Genesis 3. What I want you to see this morning is that from the time of this very first rebellion, the problem of sin has not changed, the position of sinners has not changed, and the grace of God in seeking sinners has not changed. Now as the story unfolds, Satan comes to Eve, and he comes in the form of a serpent, and he tempts her to sin. But look at how he comes. He comes to her when she's alone. He comes at this most vulnerable time, and he's going to do that same thing to us, by the way. He will come to us in times we are most vulnerable. And he comes in subtlety in verse 1. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, yea, has God said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now remember here that Eve does not have a sin nature. She's in the middle of the Garden of Eden. She's in perfect communion with God, and yet Satan comes to her in subtlety. And the attack that he brings on her is one that he expects she is going to supply herself. He asks, essentially, what is your understanding of the commandment of God? Remember, this is not a question that is being asked out of the serpent's curiosity. He knows what God has commanded. This question is asked for the purpose of sparking thoughts in Eve's mind. Sometimes, and this is going to be important later, sometimes asking a question is simply meant to be thought-provoking. And in this case, the serpent, Satan, has come to 
ask how Eve understands God's command. It's going to attack her with God's own command, with God's own word. If he can find a way to pervert it in her mind, that same thing happens today. If you don't think that's true, then look at the world of Christian religion today and see how much the word of God has been corrupted. What we'll see in the next chapter is that that Cain's idea of righteousness is, well, here's what I can do for myself. If I'm sincere, God has to accept it. That hasn't changed today. Much of the world has gone the way of Cain, trying to establish their own righteousness. But Adam and Eve will find out in this text that's impossible. So Satan attacks Eve subtly when she's vulnerable and she doesn't have quite the right answer verses two and three the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden god has said you shall not eat of it neither shall you touch it lest you die now i don't want to make more of this than is necessary but do you see the difference between what eve said and what god said Look back at chapter 2, verse 17. What is her understanding? Well, here's what God said. Chapter 2, verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Eve doesn't answer quite right. God said, in the day, but Eve doesn't say, that part of what God said. God doesn't just say, as Eve does, lest you die. Look at what she says in verse 3. She says that God said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God's command is clear. He said, you will surely die. The judgment for that transgression will come immediately and certainly in the day you eat thereof. Death is an absolute certainty. And Satan, it seems, seizes on this misunderstanding or this uh, misexplanation by Eve because in verse 4, the serpent said unto Eve, you shall not surely die. Oh, the consequences aren't what you think they are, Eve. Not even Satan here suggested that eating that fruit was something that was allowed. This is very important for us to grasp because later in the scriptures, the apostle Paul assures us that Eve was deceived by Satan, but you need to understand what it is that she was deceived about. In 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being being deceived was in the transgression. And what I would tell you is that the deception of Eve was not about whether or not God allowed her to eat that fruit. The deception that Eve fell under is about the consequences of disobeying God. Eve's understanding by her own words is that God has said, do not eat, and she adds, don't even touch it, right? She understands that is forbidden. It's not for her to have. But the serpent says to her in verse 4, you shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes will be open, and you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. Did Satan 
dare suggest that she misunderstood. He doesn't suggest that eating of this forbidden fruit was something that was allowable. Instead, he deceives her about the consequences of sin. Oh, you'll not surely die. Eve said if we eat, we might die, right? God said don't eat thereof lest you die, right? Death is a possibility and Satan comes and he says, well, you, you might die. You might not die. Maybe it won't be. You won't die for sure, but God knows that when you eat that fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. You'll know good from evil. Eve understood God's commandment and she willingly rebelled against his command. What I also want you to notice is why it is that she did that. What was her motive for sin? She, she disobeys the command because she thought sin was going to give her something greater than obedience would give her. You might remember as we went through John's letters that the Apostle John, in telling us to refrain from sin, this is what he says in 1 John 2.16. He says that all that is in the world, as he's describing sin, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. What is within us? that causes us to desire to break God's commands. John said, well, it's, it's the lust. It's the desires of the flesh. That's going to make me feel good, right? The world says, if it feels good, do it. It's the lust of the eyes. Oh, I, I like the way that that looks. I covet it. I'm going to look at it and long for it. I desire what God has told me that I can't have. And then he says, it's the pride of life, that self-exalting attitude that consumes us. We elevate ourselves in our pride and we say, well, I don't care what God commands. I want that and I deserve it. I should have it. Did Eve experience those things? It seems like in some sense she did. Look at verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, And the tree desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. See how some things never change? What's the catalyst for our sin today? Oh, that's going to feel good, and I like the way it looks, and don't I deserve to get what it is that I want? What's Eve's motivation? Well, that's going to feel good when I eat it. It looks good for food and uh, it's, it's pleasant to the eyes. I certainly like the way that it looks and it's desired to make one wise and God just doesn't want me to have what it is that I want and so I'm going to exalt myself above him. Before we move on, I also want you to see another important thing. Adam was not deceived. Remember what Paul said? Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Adam, then, was not deceived. There's so much that we're not told in verse 6, but I don't want you to suggest to you that I somehow know for certainty the things which haven't been told. I'm not real good with preaching the white spaces between verses. 
yet, and I hope I never get good at that. But you can imagine for a moment what it must have been like when that scene unfolds as Eve brings this fruit to Adam. Maybe she came quietly without a word and just hands the fruit to her husband. I don't know if she spoke any words of deceitfulness herself. Now, suggesting that it was from some other tree, but what I can say with certainty is whatever she did, Adam wasn't deceived by it. He knew what it was. Here she was, already a, a fallen woman. She was changed. I have to assume it was obvious to Adam. How could he not know? You know did he recognize the difference? Was, there, was, was she already showing some sense of shame at her sin? I don't know, but I can tell you, Adam wasn't deceived. Whatever, however that transpires, Adam wasn't fooled. She brings him this fruit in her hand. Adam surely recognizes it. You know, we always picture it as an apple, as an apple today. I, I, I would guess that it was something more like a, a fig or maybe in a fruit we don't know. But regardless of what it was, Adam knew what it was, and Adam knew where it came from. He was not deceived. Maybe she repeated the words of Satan. Oh, we, 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 we might not die. We won't surely die. Maybe we're going to become like God if we do this. Adam knew it wasn't true. Not only did Adam know where the fruit had come from, he also knew that it was forbidden to him. And furthermore, Adam was not deceived about the consequences of this sin. Eve was deceived about the consequences. Adam was not. And so the very man who rejoiced in his creator and welcomed the time when the Lord God would come and walk with him in the twilight of the day in the garden, that man took the fruit knowing what he was doing and rebelled against his creator. And he did so willingly and he did so knowingly. He was not deceived. In verse 7, the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Realize this, this awful realization that came with sin. Two things happened to Adam at exactly the same time. First, he was able to discern the difference between good and evil and second, he became the very evil that he could recognize. I wonder how quickly their eyes were opened and some understanding of sin came to them as they looked on themselves. I don't think it was very long. It likely happened at the very same moment. But what an awful realization sin brought. What could they look at? Where could they focus this this newfound knowledge and find comfort if they looked at themselves All they would see is sin. If they looked around them in the garden, nature declares the glory and goodness of God. It only serves to make them lower. They look at the entirety of creation, which God himself had observed and said, it's very good. And now they've ruined it. Adam and Eve, those first humans, were the crowning achievement of creation. And now they are no longer good. Adam must have thought, I, I, know, 
Now I know what good is and I know what evil is and everywhere I look, my eyes are met with the righteousness of God and every bit of his good creation reinforces the sinfulness of myself. It seems that that's the reaction because look at what happens. They immediately react with, well, what what can we do? We, We can't remain like this. And so they want to be covered in verse 7. What do do Adam and Eve seek to be covered from? Nothing in the text tells us that they were trying to cover themselves from each other. That doesn't appear to be the case. There's no one else in creation, no other people with which to worry about. Surely it's not the trees and animals of the garden that they fear to see them exposed. And yet still they realize we can't stay like this. We, We need to make ourselves a a covering before the Lord returns. And, and even now, the, the sun's going down, and even now the breeze is picking up, and the, the cool air is bringing on twilight, and the sound of Yahweh coming to walk with us, and we can't be exposed to his righteousness like this. They are no doubt faced with a difficult question. What is the attitude of the Lord going to be when he comes to us now that we have rebelled against him. They knew his commandment that they would surely die. Adam wasn't fooled about that one bit. And when he comes, no doubt he will recognize they're they're exposed and and their, their sin, just like they've recognized it in themselves. And they're thinking, well, if he sees us this way, damnation is sure to be what awaits. So let's grab some fig leaves and provide a covering for ourselves. Come on, we can do this. We can make ourselves able to stand before him. We'll provide ourselves a covering. Well, how well did it work in verse 8? They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They had those fig leaf outfits finished. Their aprons, their covering was was complete, and yet they knew that it was not good enough. Maybe they thought that it would be good enough for a, a time, But as the air cooled and the sunset approached and they heard the voice of the Lord, they knew this isn't good enough. We've done the best we can and there is no way the best that we can do is enough. In fact, by attempting to cover themselves like this, they've made themselves worse in the process. In their nakedness, they were already sinners, but those pathetic little fig leaf aprons are now made them sinners covered with filthy rags, trying to present themselves to God in self-righteousness, which doesn't exist. They can't stand before God this way. They can't stand before God at all. They thought it would work. They believed that this scheme would be successful. And yet, what makes them change their mind? As we read the text, what makes them change their mind? Was it God showing up and standing before them and declaring their sin? No, had it been that, it would have been too late. Folks, it's the same for us. If if you 
wait for the day that you are standing exposed in your sin before God, it's going to be too late for mercy and repentance. You, like Adam and Eve, cannot be good enough to satisfy God. But something causes Adam and Eve to abandon this attempt at at self-righteousness and instead they they decide they're going to flee from God. They're going to run from him. They're going to hide from him. Oh, maybe he won't come to us. Maybe we won't have to stand before God this day. We can hide ourselves from him. But there's no place that you can hide from the all-present God. Psalm 139.7 says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? There's no place to get out of the presence of the omnipresent God. And yet they said, well, let's get behind the trees. Well, that's not going to work. They could not find a hiding place. And they hear his voice. They know that the moment is approaching when they're going to stand before him and they're going to stand before him exposed and they're going to have to answer for the sin and rebellion that they've committed. And they know when we face God, it's not going to be in the loving kindness he showed us in the past. Surely, when we stand before him, it's going to be a time of judgment. Because not only can you not be good enough to satisfy God, you can't go far enough to get away from God. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. But if we die in the state in which we're in, in which we have no covering, no hiding place, we're not going to be able to stand before God. We'll be cast into everlasting punishment. No, something has to happen. Before that judgment comes, something has to occur, something, some, some change has to transpire before that moment. What I want us to see is what caused them to finally realize the work of their own hands wasn't good enough. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. Their eyes were open to their sin. They tried in vain to cover themselves. But when they heard the glorious voice of Yahweh the Creator as he came to be with them, It was at the moment of hearing that precious voice that their minds changed about their self-righteousness. Despite what they had thought before, they're not ready to stand before God. Those, Those aprons of fig leaves will do them no good. It's not going to work. But have you ever asked yourself why it is that they heard the voice of the Lord? This was God's plan for them to hear it. Could God at this point just have appeared physically before them without warning? Yes, it's his creation and he is God. All that he does is righteous. But they're not not prepared for that. They're not ready for that. If their plan was to present their self-righteousness to God, their attitude needed to change before that moment came. And so it is the voice of God 
In our case, it's the Word of God that brings us that change of attitude. They hear the voice of the Lord and they realize on hearing his voice, no, we're, we're just as naked and exposed as we were before. These fig leaves haven't helped. We're going to have to give an answer. We're going to have to give an account for the things we've done. But folks, don't you see the mercy in that? That message, the word, the voice of God comes to them before God stands before them in judgment. For Adam and Eve standing in their own self-righteousness, God could have appeared to them in judgment and executed his word on the spot. Eternal death and hell for both of you. You've rejected me. You've rebelled against your creator. But instead, they hear the voice of the Lord. They get a message of judgment before that judgment falls. And it causes them to abandon their self-righteousness. Now, we don't know the time of day specifically that this sin occurred or how much later it is that God came, but we can tell from the text it, it wasn't immediate, right? They had time to make those fig leaf aprons, and then they heard the voice of the Lord. And again, this shows God's mercy. It gave them time to hear him. It gave them time to consider their actions and their situations. And I think this would be important for generations for their children. He was merciful. God was merciful in allowing Adam and Eve a little time to just sort of marinate in the reality of their rebellion. I don't mean that living in sin is a good thing. Clearly it's not. But had God come to them immediately in judgment on sin, they couldn't have stood before him. And similarly, if God came to them immediately and just showed grace, I don't know that Adam and Eve would have appreciated grace for what it is. It's the the opposite of justice. Justice is getting the appropriate punishment for your actions. But by this delay, God allowed them to, to contemplate their condition in a way that would prove beneficial for them and their children. You realize Adam lived to be like 930 years old. I can picture him, and we know from the next accounts of, of Cain and Abel that, that Adam and Eve communicated to their children the, the concepts of righteousness. I can picture Adam for generations bouncing children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren on his knee, telling them this account, and like of all of my 930 years, it was that brief time and unrepentant sin which was where it was anticipating the wrath of God, that was the most unsettling. Not only do we know that God showed them mercy in allowing them and making them to wait, but also he showed them mercy in allowing them to hear his voice before experiencing his presence. Not only that, but we know what they heard in his voice. Verse 9. The Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Finally, after the attack by Satan, after the sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve, after this lesson on their own self-righteousness, after they hear the voice of the Lord, now they're going to get the answer that they've been questioning of themselves. How is it that the Lord will, will come to us now that we've rebelled against him? And the answer is clearly in verse 9, the Lord's going to come seeking. 
So many today hold the view that it is the sinner who seeks after God. And frankly, that is what Adam should have done. Adam, immediately after his sin, should have desired to approach God and throw himself on God's mercy. He should have confessed his deeds before his perfect maker and submitted himself to the judgment of God, be it for his salvation or his destruction. That's what Adam should have done. But Adam could not do it. I don't say that he would not, although that's also true. He could not. Because in that moment that he sinned, the ability and even the desire to commune with God was entirely lost. All he wants at that point is that God would stay away and have nothing to do with him. God had told them, after all, you shall not eat of that, for in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And he meant that. That sin brought death. They began to die physically that day. But let me tell you, when the creator who made the sun, moon, and stars, who separated light from darkness, who established day and night and even defined them by saying the evening and the morning is the first day, when that creator God says, in the day you eat thereof, you're going to die, they died that day. Their minds still thought, their bodies still breathed, but Adam's spirit was dead. It had no desire to interact with God. Adam and Eve's every action after eating the fruit, as, you, if we, as we've read this text, everything they've done is an attempt to save their skin. They have no concern at all about saving their souls. they both became immediately depraved and therefore unwilling and unable to approach God. But praise God, he approaches them. He comes seeking and he comes with a question. They hear his voice and the voice of God is saying, where are you? Now remember, we talked about earlier, sometimes a question is meant to be thought-provoking. Understand that for a sovereign, all-knowing God, this question is a rhetorical one. Don't for a moment picture God wandering around the Garden of Eden in some weird game of hide-and-seek with Adam and Eve trying to figure out where they were. Verse 9 tells us that God called Adam and said, To Adam, where are you? So far from being a a question from God, it's aimed as an examining question for Adam. You, cowering there with your wife, you've defiled those fig leaves I've created, you're hiding behind trees that I made, I see you. Do you see yourself? Do you see where you are? God knows what Adam has done. God knows God's made it clear to Adam that Adam knows that God knows what Adam has done. God made this earth. He created that garden. He formed those trees. You can't take fruit from that tree without him knowing it. And so he asks, where are you? Do you see the place that you've put yourself Do you see that new position? Do you recognize just how far you've gone? Where are you? 
The serpent told you that that sin was going to bring you pleasure and that you would be a god. Was he right? Are you better off now? Do you see where you are? What about your reason for eating it? Did that sin bring you the fulfillment of the flesh that you hoped for? Or does that fruit lie rotting in your stomach just like it's poisoned your spirit? Does it still look good to your eyes while you hide there in the fig leaf apron? What happened to all that self-exalting pride you were sure you were going to get from this? Adam has openly rebelled against God and now can he hope to like secretly hide from him? No, he has to evaluate himself. Recognize his sin and his situation and see what he's done to himself. So the Lord asks, where are you? Do you see where you're at? Look at, look at the place sin's brought you. Folks, hear for yourself the calling of God to sinners today and ask yourself the same question. Where are you? What has sin done for your life? Is it all that you had hoped for? Is your flesh appeased? Are your eyes ever satisfied? Is your pride in yourself really full? Or have you found that sin is unable to bring any of the lasting contentment you'd hoped for? Has Satan's promise been fulfilled in you? Has your sin made you like God or has sin become your God? Have you mastered your sin or are you a slave to it? You see how far from the Lord it has taken you? Then hear the voice of the Lord calling and know that you are about to stand before him and judgment is awaiting. You've heard that word. You know the consequences of rebellion. You have to see that your sin has left you exposed before your creator. And in your self-righteousness, it has turned your neck to the very knife of God's wrath. Pray that God will seek out from among us today those who need a covering. That the Holy Spirit would would just show us our false hiding places and make us evaluate our position of where we are and what we've done and make us see it because you have to know God sees it. And if you know that, then you know you deserve God's wrath. And the only covering that will protect you from God's wrath is Jesus Christ himself. There is within this text, just briefly, two pictures of the work of Jesus. First, down in in verse 21, the Lord provides for Adam and Eve what they could not provide for themselves. They got the covering that they needed. Not a covering made by their own hands, but a coat of skins that God clearly sacrificed some sort of animal. Its blood was shed, providing for Adam and Eve a covering that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of having your sin covered by the shed blood of God's Son. The second way I would point out that this story teaches us about Jesus is that later on we know the day was coming where Jesus would come and do something very similar to what Adam has done. 
The Apostle Paul talks about this when he calls Jesus the last Adam. That is not that Jesus sinned, but he took sin unto himself. What happens in this text is that Adam looks at that fruit and he's not deceived about where it, is, where it came from, what it is, whether or not it's allowed, what the consequences are. He was not deceived and he takes that sin. And in doing so, he condemns all of humanity in the process. Adam looked at that fruit and he willingly took that sin. And yet, Jesus came and lived the life of perfect righteousness that we have failed to live. And when he went to the cross, not at all deceived about the consequences of sin, he was the last Adam who took sin onto himself and gave his righteousness to us. He understood. He wasn't deceived. He understood the the pain and separation from God, the agony that guilt would require for him to endure. And yet Paul, in calling Jesus the last Adam, said, for as in Adam all die, even so in Jesus Christ shall all be made alive. And so, my friends, where are you? Because I assure you, you are in Adam. You are a descendant of Adam. The question that remains is whether or not you are in Jesus Christ. Even today, the twilight of your life is approaching. The sunlight grows dim. The breeze is picking up the cool of the day. The time is near when you are going to stand before God and you are going to answer for your sins. Where are you? Seek refuge in Christ, the Son of God. He will cover our sins.